Hey there, stew heads. Grab a spoon and get comfy as we focus on the lives of two men whose unlikely friendship would not survive the spiritualism movement of the 1800s. I'm your host, Leah. I'm Phil. And I'm Steve. Today we're talking about the great Harry Houdini and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, men who staunchly stood on opposite sides of the belief in spiritualism. If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. Now, when you consider the life of Harry Houdini, a man who refined and perfected the art of theatrics and very much depended on an audience's suspension of belief, and the life of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of one of the most analytical and innovative geniuses in literature, Sherlock Holmes, you might assume that Houdini would be the believer in the supernatural and Doyle the skeptic, but you would be wrong. That's correct. Dun, dun, dun. These men, (laughs) who were two of the most famous personalities of their time, would meet and strike up a friendship that would eventually sour over the argument for and against the existence of the paranormal. But before we attempt to pull back the veil and examine what may or may not be behind it, let's delve into the lives of these two very brilliant but very different men. All right, let's start off with Harry Houdini. Most people know a little bit about him, but let's uh, dig into his early life. Harry Houdini was born, actually his name, Eric, E-R-I-K, Weiss, W-E-I-S-Z, on March 24th, 1874, in Budapest, Hungary, or Budapest, as they would say there. His father believed that greater opportunities awaited the family in the United States. So in 1878, he moved Eric and his five siblings to Appleton, Wisconsin, where he had been granted the position of rabbi. They changed their last name from the German spelling to, uh, uh, rather, to the German spelling Weiss, W-E-I-S-S. And Eric changed, uh, his name was actually changed from E-R-I-K to E-R-I-C-H, as in Erich. Uh, in 1882, his father lost his position as rabbi, and the family relocated to Milwaukee. Over the next five years, the family endured many financial hardships. In later years, Houdini, uh, Houdini steered biographers away from this era of his life by saying, quote, Such hardships and hunger became our lot that the less said on the subject, the better. In fact, tracing his early life is somewhat difficult because he often gave differing accounts to the journalist who wrote about him. (laughs) You don't really want to go there. You don't really want to talk about that part of my life. No. (laughs) Houdini's Milwaukee years from 1882 to 1887 were undoubtedly difficult, but they were also the years that he grew up and became a man. He got smart and he got tough. At age nine, he took a job as a bicycle riding messenger boy. He became so skilled at bike riding that he competed in the Waukesha Road Race. He also learned to swim uh, in the Milwaukee River. Now, it's probably a pretty cold river, don't you think, most of the year? Probably. Building up his strength by swimming against the current and learning to hold his breath underwater for a considerably long time. He became friends with a fellow named Adonis Adonis Ames, who would go on to become a world-famous contortionist. Together, they would put on acrobatic shows on the Wisconsin Avenue Bridge for any money that passers-by might toss their way. On October 28, 1883, nine-year-old Eric made his first appearance on stage performing a trapeze act. He billed himself, quote, Eric, the Prince of the Air. 
He even trained as a boxer and had some success in the ring, though he was only 13. These early years in Milwaukee helped to forge Eric Weiss into the man that would later become Harry Houdini. Arthur Conan Doyle was born in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1859 to Irish Catholic parents Charles and Mary. Charles was an artist and a drunk (laughs) (laughs) who, according to ArthurConanDoyle.com website, quote, apart from fathering a a brilliant son, never accomplished anything of note, unquote. That's not a very nice quote, but okay. So both of these guys had had tough, not absent yeah. fathers, but tough but, fathers yeah, with childhood. challenges. Okay. Challenges. They felt yeah. they they fell kind of short. Yeah. His mother Mary, though, was a lively, educated woman who had a passion for books and was a terrific storyteller. Arthur later wrote that his mother would sink her voice into quote a horror-stricken whisper Ooh. when she when she reached the climax of a story. Though the family often struggled as a result of Charles's drinking and bizarre behavior, Arthur credits his mother for providing a happy childhood for him and the siblings. He, quote, in my early childhood, as far as I can remember anything at all, the vivid stories she would tell me stand out so clearly that they obscure the real facts of my life, unquote. Oh, wow. That's a pretty that's good, a good quote. You know, that, yeah, about, that's, yeah, that's a good uh, statement about his mother. Exactly. When Arthur returned nine, a wealthy uncle offered to pay for him to attend school in England at a Jesuit boarding school, which he attended for the next eight years. Though he was a decent student, he didn't like this school. He later wrote that the only happy moments during this period of his life were, was, were when he was writing leather, letters to his mother or when he was playing sports. He was a good athlete and excelled at playing cricket. He appears yeah. to have inherited his mother's penchant for storytelling as he was often found surrounded by an enthusiastic group of younger students, hanging on to his every word as he amused them with exciting stories, probably including those he heard from his mother. That's yeah, amazing. You pick up those stories and mm-hmm. you like to pass them along. Yeah. yeah. And, her, and her way of t- telling stories probably also. He graduated in 1876 at the age of 17. He was a surprisingly well-adjusted young man. His talent for sports and his good sense of humor made him popular with his classmates. Upon returning to his home, he realized that his father's sanity had badly deteriorated. <laughs> Arthur co-signed the papers, having his father committed to an insane asylum. A few years later, he drew from this experience when he wrote a story called The Surgeon of Gasterfell. Surgeon, yeah, that's a pretty rough situation that you're having to do, realizing right. your father's that way. Well, now back to Harry Houdini. <clears throat> In 1887, Eric's father relocated to New York, where he was able to find work. He soon sent for the family to join him. About this time, Eric and his brother, Theo, began to pursue an interest in magic. This was when he would adopt the name that would become that he would become famous for. As a stage name, Eric Weiss became Harry Houdini by adding an I to the last name of his idol, the French musician Robert Houdin. It's probably pronounced Robert Houdin. Robert Houdin. Okay, I'll go with that. Houdin. Now, uh, the name Harry is just really an Americanized version of his nickname, Harry, as Eric was his uh, name. Eric with a K first and a CH, but the family kind of called him Harry, so he's changed it to Harry for his stage name. The brothers Houdini began performing magic shows throughout the New York City area. Though the magic act was decent, they weren't anything spectacular. Harry began to experiment with escape acts. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> also, in 1893, while performing with his brother at Coney Island, 
Panini met a fellow performer, Wilhelmina Beatrice. Maybe fellow isn't the right, the right word in there. <laughs> Bess, um, Wilhelmina Beatrice Bess Raymer. Bess was initially courted by Theo, but in 1894, she and Harry married with Best replacing Theo in the act, which became known as the Houdinis. Oh, she broke up the act. Oh, yeah. in the middle. For the rest of Houdini's performing career, Best worked as his stage assistant. So they had a very close relationship. The Houdinis joined a traveling circus where Harry became proficient at escaping from handcuffs and locked cages. To garner publicity, Houdini challenged the police department in each town the circus visited to lock him into handcuffs and put him into one of their cells. Often he managed to free himself from both cuffs and jail cell within a very short time. He would then present the police chief a signed certificate noting that the jail was not Houdini proof. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and I wonder if any of those survived today. Like, I'm, I'm yeah, sure that they still would be. Yeah, found to, found to be some of them around. Houdini's big break came in 1899 when he met manager Martin Beck in St. Paul, Minnesota. Impressed by Houdini's handcuff act, Beck advised him to concentrate on escape acts, and he booked him on the Orpheum Vaudeville circuit. I really like reading about vaudeville. I, think I do, too. Sometimes we need a, a session, uh, uh, an episode just about vaudeville. Anyway, within months, he was performing at the top vaudeville houses in the country. In 1900, Beck arranged for Houdini to tour Europe. After some days of unsuccessful interviews in London, Houdini's British agent wrangled him an opportunity to give a demonstration of escape from handcuffs at Scotland Yard. Oh, wow. He succeeded in baffling the police so effectively that the police beat writers picked up and published the account. As a result of this publicity, he was booked into the Alhambra Theater for six months. His show was an immediate hit, and his salary rose to $300 to, uh, per week, which today would be the equivalent of about $9,000 per week. So that's getting on up there. That sure is. I, I, could, I could live on $9,000 a week. <laughs> Between 1900 and 1902, he appeared in theaters all over Great Britain, performing escape acts, illusions, card tricks, and outdoor stunts, becoming one of the world's highest-paid entertainers. He also toured the Netherlands, Germany, France, and Russia, and wow. became widely known as, quote, the Handcuff King. <laughs> in each city, Houdini continued to challenge local police to restrain him with shackles and lock him in their jails. In many of these challenging escapes, he was first stripped nude and searched. In Moscow, he escaped from a Siberian transport van, claiming that had he been unable to free himself, he would have had to travel to Siberia where the only key was kept. <laughs> it's been a long way. Long trip. In 1904, the London Daily Mirror newspaper challenged Houdini to escape from a special handcuff that it claimed had taken Nathaniel Hart, a locksmith from Birmingham, five years to make. Houdini accepted the challenge. For March 17th, during a matinee performance at the at London's Hippodrome Theater, it was reported that 4,000 people and more than 100 journalists turned out for the much-hyped event. Wow. The escape attempt dragged on for over an hour, during which Houdini emerged from his, quote, ghost house, which was a small screen used to conceal his method of escape, several times. On one occasion, he asked if the cuffs could be removed so that he could use, <clears throat> so that he could take off his coat. You know, wait a minute. I just can you imagine sitting in an audience for an hour, hour. with somebody behind a screen, just just waiting coming out every now and then. Yeah, the mirror representative Frank Parker refused, saying Houdini could gain an advantage if he saw how the cuffs were unlocked. Houdini promptly took out a penknife and, holding the knife in his teeth, used it to cut his coat from his body. Some fifty-six minutes later, Houdini's wife appeared on stage and gave him a kiss. 
Minnie later thought that in her mouth was the key to unlock the huh. special handcuffs. However, this theory is unlikely due to the size of the six-inch key. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been a little obvious. Yeah, that would have been a little too obvious. <laughs> but she could have passed him something that would have been useful. That's perhaps. true. So, uh, like a, yeah, <laughs> lockpick right. or something. Yeah. Houdini then went back behind the curtain. After another hour and ten minutes, he emerged free. As he was paraded on the shoulders of the cheering crowd, he broke down and wept. Houdini later said it was the most difficult escape of his career. Wow. With his newfound wealth, Houdini purchased a dress that was said to have been made for Queen Victoria. He then arranged a grand reception where he presented his mother in the dress to all their relatives. Houdini said it was the happiest day of his life. Wow. Upon returning to New York, he also purchased a house in Harlem for $25,000. Again, that was in around 1904. So he was getting to be very uh, successful. Right. Well, Arthur's mother had taken in a border to help make ends meet. They were struggling. Oh, this is back in Scotland now. This is back in Scotland. Yes. The man was a physician named Dr. Brian Charles Waller, who had trained at the University of Edinburgh. Arthur, I'm sorry, Arthur admired this young doctor and decided that he would follow his footsteps and thus entered physician's training at the university. While attending university, he met and befriended a couple of fellows who would later become famous writers themselves. Scottish novelist and playwright James Barry, best known for writing Peter Pan, and Scottish novelist Robert Louis Stevenson, best known for Treasure Island. That's pretty good company. Yeah, that's some really good company. Right? That's a good class. <laughs> but the man who made the most impactful impression on Doyle was one of his professors, Dr. Joseph Bell. This physician demonstrated keen skills at observation, deduction, and diagnosis. Dr. Bell's qualities would later emerge in the character of Doyle's most famous fictional character, the detective Sherlock Holmes. Oh, so that's Dr. Bell is who we have to thank for Sherlock Holmes. While studying medicine, Doyle somehow found time to write a couple of short stories. The Mystery of Sasasa Valley, Sasasa, Sasasa yeah. Valley, <laughs> and The American Tale were both published in British magazines. He later wrote, quote, in this year, 1878, I discovered that shillings might be earned in other ways than by filling vials. <laughs> <laughs> I can make money by writing? Whoa. <laughs> right. So it's interesting to me that, um, and you'll see throughout this, he, he, Became a doctor. He went to school to become a doctor and all of this kind of stuff, but his passion was writing. Right. It really was writing. The following year, an opportunity for adventure came his way when he was offered the post of ship's surgeon on a whaling boat called the Hope. This mm-hmm. voyage took him to Greenland and then to the Arctic Circle and awoke in him the soul of a born wanderer. He channeled this experience into another short story, The Captain of the Pole Star. Oh, okay. After returning from the Arctic, he completed his studies, graduating in the spring of 1881 with a Bachelor of Medicine and Master of Surgery degrees. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. On this occasion, he drew <laughs> he drew a humorous sketch of himself receiving his diploma with the caption, quote, licensed to kill. <laughs> <laughs> About a 22-year-old would say, I think. Yeah. Upon graduating, he took, he took another post of, as a ship's surgeon on an old steamer that piled... Um, that plied between Liverpool and the west coast of Africa. He then hooked up with an unscrupulous doctor in Plymouth, but his association was a disaster, leaving him nearly bankrupt. Uh oh. He yeah. then settled in Portsmouth, England, and opened his own practice. All right, now let's go back to Houdini. From 1907 and throughout the 1910s, or 19 teens, we should say. 
Houdini performed with great success in the United States. He freed himself from jails, handcuffs, chains, ropes, and straitjackets, often while hanging from a rope inside of street audiences. Because of imitators, Houdini put his handcuff act behind him uh, <laughs> on January 25th, 1908, and began escaping from a locked, water-filled milk can. Wait, a milk, milk can? can. Like, how big was this? Big, a, big, a big milk uh, container, I think. Okay, because uh, yeah. I've seen yeah. the antique milk cans around here and that you couldn't they're fit t- a toddler in it. <laughs> and so, okay. I think they're a much larger one, yeah. Okay. The possibility of failure and death thrilled his audiences. Houdini also expanded his repertoire with his Escape Challenge Act, in which he invited the public to devise con- uh, contraptions to hold him. These included a nailed packing crate, sometimes lowered into water, Riveted boilers, mailbags, and even the belly of a whale that had washed ashore in Boston. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's I don't think he actually like did whale. some of these things, but uh, yeah, you know, they, they those are ideas with... that came in from people. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, that makes more Doesn't sense. Mean oh, he didn't... tried them, but he just looked at him and went, <laughs> "Really? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't crawl into the be- oh, that belly of that, a dead whale. That, that makes me. That reminds me of that <laughs> that whale explosion story yeah, that we right. talked about. <laughs> And there's parts everywhere. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, some brewers challenged Houdini to escape from a barrel after they filled it with beer. Now, many of these challenges were arranged with local <laughs> merchants in one of the first use of mass tie-in marketing. There I you think go. he actually did do that one. Houdini introduced the Chinese water torture cell at the Circus Bush in Berlin uh, in September 21st, 1912. He was suspended upside down in a locked glass and steel cabinet, full to overflowing with water, holding his breath for more than three minutes. He would go on performing this escape for the rest of his life. Oh, All that wow. time in the Milwaukee River where he learned how to hold his breath. Yeah, seriously. There. During his career, Houdini explained some of his tricks and books written for the Magic Brotherhood. In Handcuffs Secrets, written in 1909, he re- revealed how many locks and handcuffs could be opened with properly applied force. Others with shoestrings. Other times he carried concealed toothpicks or keys. When tied down in ropes or straitjackets, he gained wiggle room by enlarging his shoulders and chest, like expanding, you know, how you'd look mm-hmm. put your, you know, while they were tying him up, and keeping his arms slightly away from his body so he wouldn't have his arms right up against him while yeah, they were so putting they right, give himself I, a little bit of space. You know, I've known horses that did that when, when you put on a saddle. <laughs> Later, just to, you know, yeah, start to run just out. Just yeah. turn over. Yeah. <laughs> his uh, his uh, straitjacket escape was originally performed behind curtains with him popping out free at the end. But Houdini's brother, who was also an escape artist, billing himself as Theodore Hardin, or Hardeen, H-E-R-D-E-N, discovered that audiences were more impressed when the curtains were eliminated so that they could watch him struggle to get out. <laughs> On more than one occasion, they both performed straight-jacket escapes while dangling upside down from the roof of a building at the same time. Oh, wow. They have kind of a race, sibling rivalry. <laughs> right? You can get out there of the upside-down straight-jacket first. For most of his career, Houdini was a headline act in vaudeville. For many years, he was the highest-paid performer in American vaudeville. One of Houdini's most notable non-escape stage illusions was performed at the New York Hippodrome when he vanished a full-grown elephant from the stage. Now, that's a good trick. That's pretty impressive. That is. He had purchased this trick from the magician Charles Morritt. In 1923, Houdini became president of Martinka & Company, America's oldest magic company, and that business is still in operation today. Oh, wow. Now it goes back to... uh, Back to Doyle. Doyle. 
Upon renting a house and nailing up a shingle reading Dr. Arthur Conan Doyle, physician, he opened his doors for business. This is in Plymouth, England, I believe. That's right. He only had enough money to furnish the two rooms that patients would visit. The rest of the house was left nearly empty, but he developed a reputation for being hardworking and compassionate, and soon his practice earned him a comfortable income. For the next few years, he divided his time between medical practice and his desire to become a recognized writer. In August of 1885, he met and married a young woman named Louisa Hawkins. In his memoirs, he described her as gentle and amiable. Whoa, whoa, calm down. This is a family (laughs) show now. Seriously? Whoa, hold on there, Arthur. Let's uh, not be so... Okay, there's worse things, right? (laughs) At least she was sweet. While maintaining his medical practice and settling into married life, Doyle began writing the novel, which catapulted him into fame. In 1888, a study in Scarlet was published in Beaton's Christmas Annual. This story introduced readers to Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. It was an almost instant success. Today, yeah. we would say the the story went viral, exactly. and I yeah, completely overnight success. I I completely understand. I love the the whole story of Sherlock. I love the character of Sherlock Holmes and yeah. Dr. Watson, and I love almost almost not all, but mm-hmm. almost all incarnations of it. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. For the next several years, publishers clamored for Doyle to write more Holmes and Watson stories, which he did. But he never really considered these stories to be his best writing. He continued publishing other short stories, including one strange tale about three vengeful Buddhist monks called The Mystery of Clumber. C-L-O-M-B-E-R, Clumber. Clumber. This story is the first indication of Doyle's fascination with the paranormal and spiritualism. In 1889, Doyle met an American editor named Joseph Marshall Stoddard. Stoddard invited him to dine with him and another British author, uh, Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, Mm -hmm. yeah. Which Wilde would turn out to be really big into the the spiritualism movement. Doyle and Wilde struck up a friendship that would last for many years. Stoddard agreed to publish Doyle's latest Sherlock Holmes story, The Sign of Four, in the United States. The story became a hit in America and thus increased Doyle's reputation and also his pocketbook. Yeah. After the birth of his daughter, Mary, Arthur decided to move his medical practice to Vienna. Why did he did that? Who knows? I think there were some interesting he, things there, he thought. It <laughs> turned out to be disastrous because he didn't speak German at all. <laughs> <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> Let's try it out. He uh, soon oops. came back to England right. and set up practice in a wealthy neighborhood in London. According to his autobiography, quote, not a single patient ever crossed my door. <laughs> so he wasn't closed, really into his medical. Yeah. yeah, so he closed down like a, a legitimate, you know, good business, good business right. and tried something else. And then, yeah. Yep. yeah. It didn't work. He was then approached by The Strand, a popular magazine in London, with a lucrative offer to write a series of Sherlock Holmes stories to be published in their magazine. And thank goodness they did. Mm-hmm. He was introduced to a popular illustrator named Sidney Paget, who drew a caricature of Sherlock Holmes based on his his handsome brother, Walter. Hmm. The collaboration between Doyle, Paget, and The Strand lasted for many decades and was instrumental in making the author, the magazine, and the artist world famous. Right. Oh, wow. Doyle, yeah. Doyle soon gave up attempts at medical practice and instead focused solely on his writing. His son, Kingsley, was born in 1892. And now for something completely off topic and off kilter. 
Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. Let's look into something a little bit different now. You guys ever heard of Margaret Mead? Uh, you know, um, yeah. I, I have it right here in front of me. I, I would I would have said no, but <laughs> but I read this that yeah. you wrote, and and yes, I did. I had read this and and had heard about this, which is really interesting. Well, uh, I remember seeing her on television back in the '60s and early '70s. She was a noted American cultural anthropologist. She lived from 1901 to 1979. Uh, from the years 1925 to 1975, that was a 50-year span, she authored or co-authored more than two dozen books examining cultures around the world. Her topics of study were wide-ranging, beginning with Growing Up in Samoa and New Guinea, that was in 1928, Sex and Temperament in the Three uh, Primitive Societies in 1935, Soviet Attitudes Toward Authority, 1950, mm-hmm. I bet that was an interesting one, 1951, <laughs> Themes in French Culture, 1954, and A Rap on Race, 1971. During the 60s and 70s, she was frequently featured on television, radio, and print media concerning those changing times. Oh, wow. During one stint, as a guest lecturer, Mead was asked by a student what she considered to be the first sign of civilization in a culture. What do you guys think you, what would you consider the first sign of civilization in a culture? Um, or first sign of civilization. Well, I know this story, but uh, if I didn't know this, I would say like tools, you know, mm-hmm. either metal or or the the first signs of tools, yeah, uh, the one. use of tools. What do you think, Phil? I'm pretty close to that, too. I mean, at least, you know, jumping on to rather than just, arch- you know, being able to progress further. I think to me, uh, you know, to, uh, to sign of whether a place is really civilized, it's whether or not there's a sonic drive-in. You know, or at least a <laughs> sonic <laughs> ice machine. You My know. uncle used to say, you know, if a town's going to make it, if Walmart decided to create something. That <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, or and, if they, was, and then if they had an Arby's, but that's... Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, now in, uh, in, in, in West Texas, where I grew up in the Hill Country, actually, um, we would rate Dairy Queen towns. That's right. right. We were a two Dairy right. Queen town. Too bad for you, Fredericksburg. You were only a one Dairy Queen town. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, that's kind of a bit off the topic, but... Um, uh, the student later admitted that she was expecting an answer like fish hooks or clay pots or grinding grain, but Margaret Mead had a different answer. Margaret said that the first sign of civilization in the culture is a femur, thigh bone, that had been broken and then healed. Huh. She went on to explain that in the animal kingdom, if you break a leg, you die. You cannot run from danger. You cannot get to the river to drink or hunt for food. You become meat for prowling beasts. No animal survives a broken leg long enough for the bone to heal. A broken leg that is healed showed signs that someone has taken time to stay with the one who fell, has bound up the wound, has carried the person to safety, and has tended to the person's needs through recovery. Wow. Helping someone else through difficulty is where civilization starts, Mead said. Wow. Well, now this is a really great anecdote, I think. And I actually came across it on a on a Facebook page called Earth and Hell. Place for it, but anyway. well, I've seen the but I've seen yeah I've seen the story somewhere probably on Facebook. However, something odd happened when I tried to verify the quote. Ah, I learned that this quote has been widely circulated for many years. The web uh, website called TruthOrFiction.com reported that Google searches of the quote date back almost as old as Google, uh, back as far as 2006. 
and viral status was achieved in 2020 during the pandemic. They further state that a 1997 article in the Bulletin of American College, uh, I'm sorry, Bulletin of the American College of Surgeons contains the quote, but no reference to when or where the quote was made or who the student was who asked the question. Before 1997, there is only one known printed reference to the quote, and it comes from a 1980 memoir called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, written by a Christian physician, Dr. Paul Brandt, and co-authored by a popular Christian writer named Philip Yancey. According to their editor, Dr. Brandt's writing style was a bit too dry and technical. Yancey, his co-author, encouraged him to supplement his details with stories from his 30-plus years' experience as a surgeon. Occasionally, Dr. Brandt's wife helped with supplying these anecdotes. This book is the first known existence of the Mead quote. However, it doesn't contain any information about when or where Mead made the famous quote. So it's unknown today if Dr. Brandt or his wife actually heard Mead make the quote, or if they heard it from someone else, or if they just thought they heard it. (laughs) Thus, it's unknown to this day whether or not Margaret Mead actually made the statement, but it's an interesting study in how information, and occasionally maybe misinformation, can get passed along, even in reputable uh, medical journals pass it along. That's, yeah, that's true. Without it uh, even being uh, verified necessarily. That's absolutely true. That's fascinating. As we say here, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> Tell a good story. <laughs> um, I, I, I saw some quote or something on with the uh, with a graphic saying, uh, you, you can't trust everything you hear or see on the internet. And the quote is attributed to Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. That's good. Well, let's get back to Harry Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, Houdini's success and wealth allowed him to indulge in other passions, such as aviation and film. He purchased his first airplane in 1909. That's a pretty basic airplane, I'm thinking. And became one of the first pilots to fly across Australia. He remained an avid pilot for the rest of his life. Did he buy it from the Wright brothers? He might have been (laughs) one one of the Wright flyers, yeah. Houdini also launched a movie career, releasing his first film in 1909, which documented his escapes. He would show this film as part of his vaudeville show. He starred in several subsequent films, including The Master Mystery, The Grim Game, and Terror Island. In New York, he started his own production company, Houdini Picture Corporation, and a film lab called the Film Development Corporation, but neither one was a success. He also served as president of the Society of American Magicians. Wherever he would travel, he would always take time to meet with and encourage local magicians. He would even pay for banquet dinners to be given for them. He was especially keen to debunk the mystics and spiritualists who claimed to perform tricks by means of supernatural powers. Houdini never claimed to have any supernatural powers. He performed his stunts by means of an incredible ability to pick locks, hold his breath, and wiggle out of confining enclosures. Wow. That's, that's interesting that he really took this mentorship right. yeah. uh, attitude um, yeah. on. Encouraging that, other young magi- magicians. Right, right. And I always, I like the quote, uh, you know, well, I don't know where the quote came from. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, always be the mentor that you wish you had. That's and a really good idea. That is a good quote. And those are that and those make the best mentors, I right. think. Uh and it sounds like he really was wanting as a child. I mean, he grew up fast. Right. And uh didn't have a lot of mentors, just hard 
hard life experiences, it seems. That's right. That's right. Now, you remember how we said that he took the name Houdini in honor of the French magician Robert Houdin. Well, after spending considerable time and effort studying the works of Houdin, Houdini determined that the Frenchman was a fraud. Houdini wrote a collection of articles on the history of magic, which were expanded into The Unmasking of Robert Houdin, published in 1908. In this book, he attacked his former idol, Robert Houdin, as a liar and a fraud for having claimed the invention of the automata, which is a moving mechanical device made to look like a human, kind of like a robot, and effects such as aerial uh, suspension, like walking on air, which had been in existence for many years. Many of the allegations in this book were dismissed by magicians and researchers who defended Robert Houdin. Houdini's publishing career didn't end with his literary takedown of Houdin, as he later wrote Miracle Mongers and Their Methods, 1920, (laughs) and A Magician Among the Spirits, 1924. Now, Sherlock Holmes and his friend Dr. Watson were enormously popular to London readers of The Strand, but their creator was not so in love with them. In 1893, Arthur Conan Doyle decided he was tired of Holmes and Watson, so in spite of everyone's pleading, he decided to kill them off. <laughs> His mother claimed, you must not do this. Yes, he was, he was so tired of it. He was. And he got letters. He got hundreds and hundreds yeah. of letters. And he, was, he just didn't see this as, as good writing. Right. right. Um, so in the story, The Final Problem, pu- published in December of 1893, Holmes became locked in a physical struggle with his nemesis, evil genius Dr. Moriarty, and they both plunged to their deaths at Reichenbach Falls in Switzerland. Hmm. As a result, 20,000 re- readers canceled their subscriptions <laughs> to the strike. <laughs> so you know that magazine was not happy with They're him. They're like, wait. Oh, yeah, right. Nonetheless, Holmes was overjoyed to be able to devote time to writing what he considered to be his finer work. I find it funny that the serial story of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson was thought of by Doyle to be hack work, (laughs) grudgingly written in order to pay the bills. In time, the whole of the short stories and novels ended up bringing Doyle enduring recognition as a writer that would be key in defining uh, the literary genre of the murder mystery. Like, he is... I mean, it, it's literature. Yeah. It's not considered. I mean, even though it was a serial story written in a magazine, um, it's it's considered good literature now. Right. Exactly. Um, but at about this time, Doyle's wife, Louisa, became ill with tuberculosis. Oh. He also learned of the death of his father, who had spent the last 15 years of his life in the asylum. These two events appeared to plunge Doyle into a deep depression, something that he struggled with for the rest of his life. But these circumstances also increased his interest in spiritualism and, quote, life beyond the veil. Right. He publicly joined a group called the Society for Psych- Psychical Research. The phenomenon known as the spiritualism movement had begun around 1840, reportedly in New York, and quickly spread across the country. Oh, yeah. We were talking about that in a different episode. The girls exactly. with their with their toe-knuckle crackles. And honestly, <laughs> right? they are the ones that started it. It yeah. started with them in New York. And uh, <laughs> even though – and I don't know. The Fox sisters. The Fox the sisters. Yeah. And they weren't, they weren't they were, outed yeah. as hoaxes for many years right. and by the time they were the spiritual it spiritualism yeah it had already yeah. taken off and but wasn't and, it one of the other other sisters came yeah. up and said it was the other sister leah that yeah. understood what was going <laughs> Take on, the show on the road. <laughs> and it's like we can make money with this yeah exactly. yeah 
it was finally, but here's the thing about the, the spiritualism movement. It was finally a time in which things, uh, believing in things like that didn't right. have dire consequences. Yeah, like you weren't death. Just, yeah, exactly. right. You weren't stoned You're, to death. Right. Uh, and so that did a lot for the growth of it. Um, I think we, I think all cultures all have their beliefs in what have you, the afterlife, whether it's a Christian yeah. uh, concept or, or what, but, um, if it's not the accepted one, then, then in the past yeah. it was very, uh, it could be bad. It could be very bad. Yep. That's right. Right. Uh, and, and Arthur Doyle became caught up in the emerging movement. In 1894, Doyle traveled to the U.S. to give a series of lectures. He was booked to give talks in more than 30 cities. The tour was a huge success. According to the Ladies' Home Journal, quote, few foreign writers have made more friends in the U.S. than uh, A. Conan Doyle. His personality is attractive to Americans because he appears so thoroughly wholesome, mm, unquote. What a nice guy. Upon his return to England, the Strand began publication of his Brigadier Gerard stories, which became very popular with readers. And I have no clue. I've never heard of that. I've never heard of that either. In 1896, he took Louisa with him to Egypt, where he hoped the dry climate might benefit, benefit her health. He also utilized the desert setting for another novel called The Tragedy of Carrasco. Upon returning from Egypt, Doyle found that he needed to shore up his bank account. So he decided... To resurrect Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than a short story, this time the detective solved crimes in a play. The play ran in America first before uh, coming home to England. The critics generally panned it, but the public loved it. Isn't that the way it often is? You know? Yeah. Right. Well, here's the thing. This is what I think of writing. This is my mm-hmm. opinion. You can have bad plot. You can have bad uh all these things, but yeah. if you have a good character, oh, if character. good character development, yes, yeah. uh, uh, love covers a multitude right of, of sins, sins, right? Even an unbelievable plot, right. good characters will carry it a long way. That's right. And yeah. if you've got people that have fallen in love with your characters, you can get away with a whole exactly. lot. <laughs> um, when the British war with the Boers in South Africa began in 1899... Doyle horrified his family by volunteering to join the army. (laughs) (laughs) Another bad decision. Hmm. He felt that he needed to see war up close and personal in order to become a better writer. He's not the only one that's that's thought that. Being a chubby age 42, (laughs) the regular army rejected his application. Uh, So he volunteered his medical training. He was accepted and spent several months near the front lines. He spent more time treating victims of typhoid fever, though, than war wounds. Mm, that's right. nasty. Upon completion of the war in 1902, Doyle wrote a 500-page chronicle called The Great Boer War, detailing his observations from the perspective of a military doctor. Upon returning to the U.K., Doyle tried his hand at politics by running for a seat representing his old town of, or his old hometown of Edinburgh. He lost. On his way back to London, he spent some time in Devonshire Moors. This spooky location became became the setting for his next novel, one of my favorites, The Hound of the Baskervilles. The great old movie that they were made on the the movies, the TV shows, the spinoffs, the all kinds of stuff. One of my favorite books is a novel about Irene Adler, which was his uh, one. She was the one person in the stories yeah. that that kind of sort of matched his genius. Yeah, and yeah. and so someone took her and and created a whole character yeah. and, and novel behind that. Anyway, uh, while writing this story, Doyle realized that he needed a hero. 
rather than create a new hero that we're talking about the Hound of Baskervilles yeah. again, um, rather than create a new hero, he just decided to once again, resurrect Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> the strand and its readers were delighted. Yeah. yeah he's back. And that, uh, we are too. The old TV show Dallas where they had one whole season they wiped out because it was somebody's dream. Cause one of yes. the actors left and then he wanted to come back, you know? Oh yeah. We'll bring him yeah, back. Yeah. Yeah. Bring him back. Just kidding. <laughs> In 1902, Doyle was knighted by King Edward VII for his service during the Boer War. The king was a big fan of Sherlock Holmes and encouraged Doyle to write more stories. The following year, the Strand started serializing the return of Sherlock Holmes. Rem- yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I bet. I just mentioned that. So, yeah. Let's get our 20,000 readers back. <laughs> he died, but guess what he didn't? Yeah. We were he kidding. didn't, actually. Louisa died in 1906, unfortunately. Mm. Doyle sunk into a deep depression, but found solace in helping others. Drawing from Sherlock Holmes, Doyle helped to free a man who had been convicted of slashing horses and cows. Doyle presented evidence to Scotland Yard that proved the convicted man would not have, could not have committed the crime. Right. His 1912 novel, The Case of Oscar Slater, was based on the event. Hmm. According to the website ArthurConanDoyle.com, which is the website of his literary estate, it's believed that Arthur Conan Doyle remained celibate during Louisa's illness. Quote, he was a man of the highest moral standards, unquote. That didn't prevent him from falling in love with a vivacious young woman named Jean Leckie. A little more than a year after Louisa's death, so an, a, a good mourning period, mm-hmm. uh, Doyle married Leckie in 1907. With Leckie and his two children, he moved into a beautiful home in Sussex where he could live or where he would live for the rest of his life. Leckie would provide him with three more children. He began writing a new series of books based on a bumbling character named Professor Challenger. (laughs) (laughs) These were amusing stories that saw the professor as a stumbling explorer in South America. They also proved to be very popular with the public. That for some time, good. I need, we need right? to look up some prof- Professor right? Challenger stories. Yeah, for some time, Arthur had been convinced of a coming war with Germany. In 1913, he began writing letters and publishing articles concerning Britain's lack of military preparedness. He saw the potential that new airships and submarines could help protect the UK from cross-channel invasion. He even encouraged the construction of a channel tunnel, yeah. something that would later. Uh, It would be another 80 years uh, to actually happen. His warnings were passed off as, quote, Jules Verne fantasies (laughs) by the military command. When the war did break out in 1914, he volunteered for service again. He was rejected again. (laughs) (laughs) So he began organizing civilian militias to guard the beaches. After news of over a thousand British soldiers perishing in one day, Doyle made suggestions to the war office about inflatable rubber boats and life jackets. Many many dismissed his ideas, but one Winston Churchill wrote to him thanking him for his suggestions. Winston Churchill was the Secretary of the Navy at that time during Mm. World War I, I believe. When he began writing a book about the British campaign, he was given permission to visit the front lines of British, French, and Australian units. After observing the Battle of St. Quentin, Doyle wrote that he would never be able to forget the horrors of the tangle of mutilated horses, quote, their necks rising and sinking, lying amongst amongst the blood-soaked remains of fallen soldiers. In his next book, Sherlock Holmes successfully infiltrates a German spy ring. 
By the time the war was over in 1918, Arthur Conan Doyle had lost his son, Kingsley. Kingsley was killed in the war. His brother, two of his brothers-in-law, and two nephews. Oh, wow. These staggering losses caused him to be even more attracted to spiritualism and the occult. In fact, he became compulsive in this area, pursuing it with the same energy he had shown in all his youthful urges. The press mocked him, and the clergy disapproved of him, but nothing deterred him. His wife joined in and with this new direction, even developing a talent for trance writing. Uh, trance writing, was, she would they helped him hold seances, and uh, she would write down messages from the dead. Right, evidently. right. Oh, boy. So we see our two gentlemen coming at this issue from opposite sides. Houdini was a vigorous campaigner against fraudulent psychic mediums. Most notably, he debunked renowned medium Mina Crandon, better known as Marjorie. This act turned him against former friend Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who believed deeply in spiritualism and Marjorie's sight. Despite his activism against spiritual charlatanism, Houdini and his wife did, in fact, experiment with otherworldly spiritualism when they decided that the first of them to die would try to communicate from beyond the grave with the survivor. Hey, honey, you know when you die or I die first, I'm going to try and talk to you. Would That's you do right. the well, same? I think, Just to see. <laughs> hey, I think well, it was yeah. a last-ditch yeah. effort to, you know, yeah. if there is anything to this, yeah. then yeah. I'm going to leave Go you Go find word. somebody that can, com- right. can, I can communicate but with. Basically, yeah. you know, deeper in water, he, he, he actually, I think, kind of wanted to believe that it was, it was true, possible. but he was convinced it wasn't. Right. But well, he has So a, then what they did was they, uh, they had a prearranged term or code code word right yeah and so she was whoever d- died first uh the other one was going to have a have some kind of spiritualist have a seance and see if they came back with that word right without right. giving that word up on the on the real no on the living side right <laughs> right only they knew it well before her 1943 death Bess Houdini declared the experiment a failure Though there are mixed reports as to the cause of Houdini's death, it is certain that he suffered from an acute appendicitis. Further, his demise was caused by a McGill University student who was testing his will by punching him in the stomach with permission, (laughs) or by poison from a band of angry spiritualists is unknown. What is known is that he died of peritonitis from a ruptured appendix on October 31st, 1926, at the age of 52 in Detroit, Michigan. After his death, Houdini's props and effects were used by his brother Arthur, I'm sorry, his brother Theodore Hardeen, <laughs> uh, who eventually call, uh, sold them to the magician and collector Sidney H. Radner. Much of the collection could be seen in the Houdini Museum in Appleton, Wisconsin, until Radner auctioned it off in 2004. Most of the prize pieces, including the water torture cell, went to magician David Copperfield. Mm-hmm. A lot of this information about Houdini, by the way, came from uh, Houdini.com biography. No, wait uh, a minute, wait a minute. Houdinifile.com. Houdini, I'm sorry, Houdinifile.com, biography.com, thegreatharryhoudini.com, and Wikipedia. Well, now back to, to Doyle. He began traveling the world in search of new information and methods for, for contacting the dead. He met with spiritualists and participated in seances in America, Australia, and Africa. All of this was costly, though, so he picked up his pen and began writing again. Three more Professor Challenger and 12 Sherlock Holmes stories poured out of him, though often with a mystic angle to them. The hectic pace of travel and writing took their toll on him. He developed heart problems 
and was told to rest in bed. Instead, he went off on one more tour in 1929 to Holland, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. When he returned to England, he had to be carried off the boat. He died peacefully at home on July 7th, 1930, at the age of 72. Oh, my goodness. All right. The following, the following comes from an article in TheGuardian.com written by Lynn Gardner. In 1920, Harry Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle met for the first time. They were two of the biggest celebrities of that age. The two men were brought together by a shared interest in spiritualism, but it's also the spiritualism that would, be ca- that would cause the rift in their friendship. One of the men, Doyle, was intent on proving contact with the other side was possible. The other man, Houdini, had his doubts. As stated earlier, Houdini was a Hungarian immigrant who was largely self-educated. It's been his life in the theater, often in vaudeville productions. He understood that part of the appeal of the theater was to get the audience to suspend disbelief. Theatrical productions often transported audiences away from the rational world. Many people believe that Houdini himself possessed magical qualities, but the showman never claimed such. He always stated that, quote, tricks of the trade enabled him to accomplish his stunning feats. Doyle was often convinced that he was seeing things that weren't observable in the natural world. He believed that the face of one of his dead nephews had appeared to him during a spiritualist's stage demonstration. Yet the theater often directs the audience to see only what the performer wants them to see. It wasn't uncommon for spiritualists in the early 20th century to use theatrical effects in their work. Being an accomplished entertainer, Houdini was well aware of theatrical effects and could see right through them. Though he longed to be able to connect with his dead mother, Houdini knew all too well of the fakery and trickery of the stage to be convinced. Yeah, he knew. (laughs) Well, it was Houdini's campaign and enthusiasm for exposing fraudulent mediums whom he described as, quote, human leeches. Well, they were, you know, in his mind, they were taking people's money and giving them false hope. False hope, for sure. That caused the rift in their friendship. One medium in particular, Marjorie Crandon from Boston, who would perform scantily clad and work in sizable element of burlesque into her public spiritualism (laughs) demonstrations, drew the ire of Harry uh, Houdini. Doyle and his wife, on the other hand, were big supporters of Crandon. The final break between Houdini and Doyle came when Doyle's wife, Jean, attempted to contact Houdini's mother during a seance in a hotel room in Atlantic City in 1922. Oh, no. During the seance, Jean began writing messages to Houdini from his mother. The messages ran on for some 15 pages and was written in perfect English. Afterward, Houdini expressed mock surprise at the perfect grammar as his mother, a Hungarian immigrant, spoke, uh, spoke little and wrote almost no English during her lifetime. That's right. The Guardian article also makes an interesting point about how the rise of spiritualism paralleled the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, I think this is interesting. We were kind of touching on it before. Right. Gardner explains, quote, the faster the new technologies uh, bring change and the more we think we know about the world or how it works is being explained to us, the more we look for something beyond, something that can't be explained. The author further states that Houdini was being cruel to be kind when he told Doyle and the others that they were being deceived. He wanted spiritualism to be true, but he was convinced by his investigation that it wasn't, and he couldn't stand by and say nothing. It's easier to fool people than to convince people that they have been fooled. 
That that's yeah. absolutely true. Yeah. That's one of the that's a very good quote. I think you know it's easier to fool people than to convince people that they have been fooled. The article closes by stating that after Houdini's death in 1926, his widow held a séance each year for ten years, hoping that her husband might contact uh, and give her a message using a prearranged code. Quote. He was always a no-show, reported us. <laughs> Ten years is long enough to wait for any man. <laughs> in 2015, the story of Houdini and Doyle had been has been made into a play called Impossible. Impossible, and it was I think it was staged in Edinburgh originally. <laughs> so very interesting men with very uh, interesting different lives. Like Houdini, right. it's funny because, I mean, when he hit... 10, 11, 12, he grew up and he just, he, he created his persona and his act and his, his profession basically out of, you know, he had to. To survive. Whereas uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, he had all of these, he was sent to school school, and he had all of these opportunities and everything. Medical training. And the one thing that he was really, really good at, he, he kind of decided, he resented it a little bit. You know, and so, uh, but I'm glad that he wrote Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, I love and all of they, the stories. Yeah. Hound of the Baskervilles. Love mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes, too. But, yeah. Very, very fascinating stories. I, I, I just love the old, there, there's a, some black and white, really old, from the 30s and 40s uh-huh. movies. Uh, Basil Rathbone playing Sherlock Holmes, you know. <laughs> and it's funny with that because his, uh, you know, he has so many disguises. Sherlock Holmes has so many disguises, and right. one of them is Basil, Basil of ba- Baker Street. Mm-hmm. Right. Elementary, my dear Watson. Which he never says in the books. <laughs> Conan Doyle never, never wrote that. that. In that. Right. That's right. That that came later. It's like, play it again, Sam. Never That's is right. in Casablanca. Yeah. <laughs> And now it's time, boys and girls, for the Trivia Challenge. All right, this Trivia Challenge, you know how this works. Like and follow our Facebook page at Remnant Stew Podcast. Like and share this episode post. Put your answer to the Trivia Challenge question in the comments of that post. That's right. The first person to do all that will be the winner and will be mentioned in an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew. Our trivia challenge is also open to students. If your classroom listens to Remnant Stew and knows the answer to the trivia challenge question, send an email to us at staycurious at remnantstew.com and a nice care package will be sent to the class. All right, so what's our question today, Leah? Here it is. There is a room completely dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and everything Sherlock Holmes. Where is it located? Only a true detective can find it. Oh, okay. Interesting. Oh, that is kind of cool. Hey, thanks for spending some time with us. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Remnant Stew Podcast. You can also send us an email to say hi or to suggest a topic for a future episode at staycurious at remnantstew.com. We love to hear from you. Remnant Stew is a part of Rook and Raven Ventures and is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode along with commentary by our audio producer, Philip Sinkfeld. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod with a voiceover by Morgan Hughes. And special thanks goes out to Judy Meeker and Harbin Gould. Thank you. Well, now, before you go, please hit the follow button so you won't miss an episode. Head on over to Apple Music and leave us a review. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, your family, your local magician's guild. 
Until next time, remember to choose to be kind and, and always, always stay, stay curious. curious.